what is amyloidosis? I don't know, I just got to spread the word and like what happened to me and what I went through. Um, because the biggest thing that I found, like even today, or yesterday actually, on the Facebook group, someone posted, are there any children of amyloid parents on here? My dad has AL, Amy, which is what same form as what dad had. I'd love to share with someone else who understands it and how to be this supportive role. I find I'm really struggling to bridge this crazy COVID time with my own family, yet still be able to feel safe seeing and helping my parents. It's around like a person supporting the person with amyloidosis. There's yeah. nothing out there. So a lot of the questions on this group is like, amyloidosis sucks. You know, my dad has just been in remission for like four years and now he's, his light chains have gone. So it's a lot of people asking questions about their mum, their dad, their sister, their husband, their wife. There isn't anything out there. So I said, well, my dad had AL. Happy to speak to you about it. Also, my dad had five grandchildren. She said, thank you so much. I'm 43 and this isn't new. Dad was diagnosed with lymphoma when I was 16 and Amy when I was 30 or so. I have three daughters, 15, 13 and 11. Haven't known a time when their grandpa isn't ill. Aww. With COVID, I'm really struggling to find a safe balance. Which is exactly how we felt as a family in, you know, dad's supposed to be shielding, but yet has to go to these really important appointments like dialysis. So how are you supposed to keep him safe? It's hard and frustrating and I feel constantly torn between two very different worlds. And it's exactly how we felt. But you know, I look at the letter. So, Do I say what the letter is? So it's to help with a campaign in trying to get the visiting restrictions lifted at the local hospice, which I refer to as PBL. So I've put, Dear Dr Carpenter, I was so glad to learn of your campaign in trying to get visiting restrictions to the patients of PBL changed during these challenging times. I'd like to share my story with you in the hope it has the smallest chance in helping your cause and of course even better the wider achievement of helping the loved ones and their family of those in your care. To give you some background to my journey I shall fill you in. I'm a community assistant practitioner and thoroughly love my job. Prior to this my biggest part of my working career so far has been in end of life and palliative care. I was a student studying health studies at West Suffolk College when I first learned I wanted to do something different, meaningful and fulfilling. My dear granddad once told me, you're a long time working to not do something you don't enjoy. So with this in mind, I decided to venture into the world of the funeral directors and mortuary assistant. I started a work placement, being the first student in the funeral home which I'd ever taken on board, and this was the first placement I'd ever experienced, which wasn't the typical nursing home environment. A learning curve for both them and myself. Thinking I'd be making the cups of tea and filing the paperwork, I was very much mistaken. I was involved from the start. I was helping with caring of the deceased, attending funeral services, collecting the deceased from the mortuary and bringing them back into the funeral home's care. It was incredible. My 18 year old self making the last ever memory of their loved one count to make it the very slightest bit easier by giving them the memory they have of their loved one in their say chosen special outfit or the cuddly toy neatly tucked under their hands or even just the smallest touch of their favourite perfume. I was making an everlasting difference. I was also incredibly fortunate to carry out my last placement within a cute hospital, watching and assisting with post-mortems. This I know is an honour and I'll be thankful to the wonderful pathologist who took so much time explaining and teaching me. However, this placement secured my passion for caring of the deceased. The good, positive grieving journey I could help influence. This is what sparked my desire of making the grieving journey better. Less of the taboo and talking about death. It's of course only by talking about it we can change the journey of the ending of what our wishes are. 
person involving children and how they can be just as much a part of this journey as the adults, as children do grieve too. During my time as a now employed funeral assistant, my granddad suddenly passed away. But as horrific as this was, I knew he was going to be looked after by me and the team I called my work family. Difficult being the huge insight of what I now know happens at a post-mortem and the heartache this brings knowing it was going to happen to him. But this has all made so much easier, as seeing him in his polo top, body warmer and cords, even as far as the brill cream in his hair, as I remembered him. Fast forward a few years, I changed my path to working for a hospice at home team. Whilst I consider myself really blessed to have had the opportunities I have, being surrounded by death from a young age can make you quite shielded. So I took on a new journey, caring for the dying. I think in any caring career, you have patients which stick in your mind. This wonderful job taught me how precious life is. A cliche I know, but being involved with the patient's family and supporting them through their dying journey is amazing. Being able to support them, teach them, suggest or find anything you could think is possible to enable them the very best ending. It was the most special job involving, say, Winston's wish, Nelson's journey and the bereavement team before the inevitable. This meant names were familiar before the surge of sympathy cards and condolences arrived. That, I believe, is the key, the pre-bereavement care. Having open and honest conversations, exposing those difficult conversations about the preferred place of care, what you do want to happen and what you don't. Of course, there are those who perhaps never will engage, but with time, continuity and support, they might. This is their journey, and although it may be familiar to us, it's more likely new to them. Fast forward again. I'm now 30 years old, I have a five-year-old son and a wonderful partner, and I've gone into community nursing for variety, challenges, and to continue my passion to care and make a difference. I suffered the loss of my mum two years ago, again another sudden death, and for her family and five grandchildren left behind, all very close to her, five grieving children, all under the age of seven, their first death experience, we had to make it a positive one, a fearless one, and that was down to us. My views on open and honest conversations and involving children have meant they attended her funeral. They drew her pictures to send up to the moon and they have Nanny's hair in a velvet pouch. And they talk about her, open, honestly and innocently. But they also know grown-ups cry and feel sad because Nanny's heart stopped working. But they know it's okay. Now to the part which matters. November 2019, my dad Brian was diagnosed with amyloidosis after many months of investigating cancer tropical diseases and just simply not knowing. Initially, it was a relief to have a diagnosis. It was a start. We were told it's rare, incurable, and most likely will be treated with chemotherapy. Here we go. My dad is a fighter. You most likely hear that a lot, but my goodness, did he fight to stay alive. He wanted to live. Within months, my beer belly dad was a shell of the man he once was but we knew amyloidosis would get to his muscle mass. I've got numerous factors, which when I feel the time is right, I will raise to gain some closure, because there's many holes in which somehow dad slipped through the net. And I only know this because I know how it can be done. We found COVID-19 to be the answer to most of these reasons at the moment, but is this really why those important conversations should not happen? My dad was asked for the very first time where his preferred place of care was on the day they stopped treatment. However, I do appreciate he didn't always want to engage, because why would he? He wanted to live. Six days prior to my dad dying, he got a bed at PBL. It was a small relief for me when I so desperately fought to try and keep him home and avoid hospital admission and avoid a crisis. 
But each hurdle was a battle from assessment, equipment, care, and even what his prognosis was looking like. But this was okay, he was going to the hospice. This I felt was a good outcome for the long tiresome journey we'd received so far. But I will freely admit, those six days were by far the worst days of my life. You would think I'm accustomed to death, dying and grief. What I realise is a newfound empathy I have for my patients, what I will care for in the future, for what is watching your loved ones die. Due to COVID, the restrictions were in place for visiting. These will have the longest impact. It was something I would compare to mental torture. I know the staff aren't to blame, and these are the guidelines that they've had to follow, but it could have been done better. Dad wasn't ready to die, but hearing his voice in turmoil for the last seven days, six of which were in your care, will stay with me forever. My dad, my protector, asking me, why am I not dead yet? My thanks to all your staff at PBL for the phone calls to keep me and my siblings updated on his condition and even to what they'd even put in his syringe driver. And how he seemed in himself, which we all appreciated, but it's not the same. We needed to see him. I know deep down how much this pandemic will have affected your staff if they have the same love for end-of-life care as what I do and my heart goes out to them, to be torn in what is not within their power, but what they feel is morally right. The day I took Dad to the hospital for his routine drain, and they finally decided to make a decision to stop his treatment. His words were, my time is up, gal. There's no more hope. The tears trickle as I typed that sentence for two reasons. Firstly, because it shouldn't have been such an abrupt ending to his hope, if it had the emotional and clinical support from the start, which could have been transitional. My thanks to Dr Holt for trying to, so hard to achieve this for us, but the referral to your team came just that bit too late. And secondly, my dad, the man of the house, losing his hope. How do you come to terms with that? I do truly thank the PBL chaplain for supporting dad as much as she could and allowing us to come to some reassurance that she was trying her best to help dad find peace and for getting the clearance so I could see dad But what would have been the last time. The visiting restrictions need to change. My journey of grief, dying and death is tainted, and I'm just one person, one daughter, out of how many? I feel guilt for the wonderful nurse who faced us on Google Duo so we could see our dead dad. The guilt of knowing what an awful position to be put in with my professional cap on, but changing to my daughter cap, I was envious. This stranger was with him. Not even after his death, we were able to see him. Many find this strange, but with mum, my son had a cup of tea with her in the chapel of rest. The difference this made for my own unique journey was enormous. For Dad, it's not an option. My last memory was in his hospital pyjamas, like any patient who's in the acute, like those I've even assisted to collect from the mortuary. No uniqueness, none of his own clothes, nothing I can picture to know this is my dad at peace. Whilst I appreciate the efforts the hospice have gone to to implement video calling, allowing us virtual visits during these challenging times, the restriction to one person tore us apart. It's implemented an everlasting guilt among siblings who didn't get the chance to say goodbye. Instead, they've just somehow accepted it. It's not enough. We need to be able to hold their hand, kiss them on the forehead, to feel their warmth, and to even whisper to them, it's okay to go, and not, we love you dad, for an iPad, held by one of your wonderful staff nurses. Families need that moment, for they don't know it might just be the last. We know what a good death is and the psychological and mental health benefits this brings, which was so cruelly snatched from me and my family. If I can help in any way in your campaign, I gladly will, because if I can help just one person, then it's been for a reason.
So you sent that off today? Um, last Friday. Oh, have you had anything back or heard anything? <gasps> Already? Yeah, it's gone to senior management. Who is Dr Carpenter with regards to the hospice? Um, she's one of the consultants, I believe. And it was a friend of yours? She's a colleague, well she's a specialist nurse at the hospice that works in the community. She had dealings with her professionally. Yeah. And ironically, when Dad first got his diagnosis, I happened to ask her, because she was in the right place at the right time, and she had actually come across one person with amyloidosis within her job role. And just to know someone out there had heard of the word amyloidosis, I was like, oh, my goodness, Tracy, come sit down. <laughs> Tell me everything you know. <laughs> yeah. I want to know everything. <laughs> And when Dad's referral finally got done, unfortunately, he was deemed too complex to be under the nursing side. So he went straight to the doctors. So Tracy and the team for the community never actually would have seen him or met him. It's just unfortunate because ordinarily they would do a home visit and make those assessments and have those conversations. But because of the lockdown, it was all done via the phone. And Dad's biggest challenge was talking over the phone. So it was really frustrating when we needed him to actually be seen so these professionals could see him with their own eyes in his home environment and not over the phone. Because what would happen is the doctor would try and speak to dad and have these conversations, but then wouldn't be able to understand him because he'd be nodding off. So then they would ring us back and be like, oh, we've tried to have this conversation and... It wouldn't get anywhere. We couldn't really understand him. I mean, I, I think I did get to one point where I was like, please just come and see him at home. But the frustrating thing was they were like, well, he's going to the hospital a lot. Well, he's going to the hospital a lot because he needs the treatments. That was for his dialysis. Yeah, and his drains. So dialysis were three times a week and his drain was cut down to once a week. The staff at the Ailton Suite at the NNN where he had his drains were really good because they were the ones that saw Dad the most frequent and had the most continuity. And they were like, what, they still haven't had the conversation with him about the do not resuscitate? And I'm like, no, no one's mentioned it. And I think it's really difficult when someone is under three different consultants. As well as COVID. Exactly. And I think one team might think the other team might be sorting it out. And in fact, no one's sorting anything out. I think I have described it in the past as it was like a hot potato. So when it came to a problem, it'd be like, well, you'd speak to the renal team and the renal team would be like, no, it's not our problem. It's the haematology team. And then you'd speak to that team. Meanwhile, there's you and the family not knowing what's happening. Yeah. Which is why, coming back to the Facebook group, you relied on that so much because you were looking for support that you weren't getting. At the end of every um, four-week block of Dad's chemo, he would have bloods taken, which would go to the amyloidosis centre, which is the umbrella in London for all these amyloidosis people. Um, They set what the treatment is and what they need. And he would get a random email back with his blood work and it would just be a bunch of numbers, really. None of us really understood what that meant. I did speak to his GP over the phone once and said, oh, it'd be really good if someone could explain what these figures mean because we've now got two, so we can see what's good and what isn't good. And his words were, I haven't got time to go through that with you. And then I rung the amyloidosis centre to find that all the nurses had been redeployed to the acute because of COVID. COVID. So that was, again, shut down. We tried Macmillan. But because Dad didn't actually have cancer, it wasn't that helpful. And again, any help from Macmillan has to have a referral from the GP. The GPs wouldn't come out and see Dad because he's being seen at the hospital. Yeah. 
So it's just this ever winding roundabout of no one really making a decision, making a conclusion, giving us answers. We did have an incident where I rang for advice and the only advice number we had was the oncology department. And that was, well, that's not to do with us. This is to do with chemo. I feel fortunate enough that because of my job role, I know what equipment is out there. The outreach nurse linked to the surgery was very helpful and she did call back. And when dad kind of got to the point where he wanted or not wanted, but knew that he did need a bit of help, he then didn't actually reach the criteria. And this is all because it's such a rare condition. It was so difficult for you because there are no teams set up. So that's why the hot potato thing was happening. Yeah. And it really didn't help COVID restrictions being upon us because a lot of the answers we were getting told for at least three weeks were we're going to have an MDT meeting with all three consultants to, to gauge where we're at. Because at one of his drains... That was the first time they sowed the seed of, okay, well, he's draining more fluid. He's needing it more frequently. That's a sign his liver's not happy. So that was the first kind of, okay, so what about the kidneys? What about the chemo? What's going on there? And obviously they can only speak with what their department is, which is his liver. So they were like, well, we'll take it back and we'll have a, we'll have a meeting. And then another week passed and the meeting is happening, not happening. Has it happened? When I would speak to the GP, I kept saying, no one's actually seen him. You need to see him in his home environment to appreciate what we're doing for him. Because we're the ones getting him in the car. We bring him to you at the hospital. And he looks quite well in a hospital bed. Mm. What you don't realise is that he can't actually stand long enough to cook anything. We haven't had much input from the dietitian to know what he can and can't eat. He was on a special diet at this point. Um, yeah, that was a bit confusing because the referral happened, we saw the dietitian, she was supposed to get back to him with the information and then the information never materialised. And then by that point he was put onto dialysis, which again is then another diet change. In the meantime he's losing weight and again no one knew what drinks to prescribe him because one, his condition and two, the dialysis changes what you do and don't need. What they like to do before someone starts dialysis is you have a home visit from the dialysis nurse. But we never got that, so we weren't really sure what... And you didn't get that because of COVID? I think dad's deterioration, he started dialysis a lot quicker than what was anticipated. And then literally a few weeks later, COVID happened. And then I think plus the renal department actually moved off-site from the hospital. The most difficult part in that entire letter, and I remember you saying this when it happened, was how you'd been able to have the closure sitting and having a cup of tea with your mum. I think as well, like, when you have a sudden death, you don't get that chance to say goodbye. It's not an option, because it's happened, Mm. and you can only deal with what you've got after. Which is why maybe people have quite elaborate funerals, because it's their way of kind of doing what they can now when which is another thing that was taken away from you yeah um, because of covid and i think with dad we couldn't have that goodbye at the hospice because we weren't allowed and also it was difficult because dad didn't want to engage with the virtual visits he didn't want an ipad held in his face yeah hearing you say that it was almost an insult to have to have it done that way yeah I think that's one of the hardest things for me is knowing what the hospice experience, the whole ethos behind the hospice is. It's, it doesn't have to be this you lay in your bed and you wait to die experience. Mm. You can embrace it right up until the very end. How, how do you choose where to die when he had no help at home and he was sold almost 
this experience of, well, you can go to the hospice, your complex, you know, will get you a bed at the hospice. And I was like, awesome, he'll have the right care and attention. But we asked one time, could you not bring the bed to the window so we could at least see him through the window? And that wasn't an option because their side rooms were spared for positive COVID patients. So he was on a bay with four other patients. So there was kind of no window to bring him up to, whereas if he was in maybe his own room, it would have enabled us to be able to visit maybe, yeah. or at least go to the window. And I think that's really difficult as well, because the staff were like, oh, this isn't how we do it here. You know, we would encourage you to even stay overnight. They were almost well, apologetic that they had yeah, to be doing I, it that I way. I do feel really sad for them, because I know it isn't how you would want it to be. And like you say, you were jealous that they got to be there with your dad. I am really, because... Those last six days, I could have been there. You could have been having your cup of tea with your dad. Yeah, I could have been there as much as I wanted to be, which is their normal visiting, and I couldn't. So, although mum's death was sudden, I got the closure with mum. And to not be able to even picture him in his chosen outfit, in in a gown, shroud, with a discount football tie put in with him. And that's another thing about the funeral, because your dad was very well known in the area. Mm-hmm. I mean, I watched the funeral online afterwards. Which funeral I was... have you watched online? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hadn't realised how well known your dad was around this. Mm. And you said to me about everybody was planning to come out to pay their respects. The best thing the dad sent off was the amount of people which came out to wave him off on the journey. Um, because I think it was the most personalised bit about it. And we hadn't quite anticipated how many people would come out that was a bit overwhelming but again I think it just reiterates what could have been yeah and then you arrive at the crematorium and there's 10 of us and it's a bit sad yeah and I know we're not the only family and I think a lot of people are gonna have a a wake later on when they can so you got the link for a month was that right yeah and it was a real wake-up call of what a lot of people have had to go through watching a funeral like that because when dad got admitted and we weren't sure what the situation was because we knew if he was going to the acute what the restrictions were we weren't quite sure for a hospice point of view what it would be mm. like his friends and we were trying to get the word out because dad's worked with people in Ireland Scotland he's traveled so much so we encouraged everybody to record a video or a voice clip or send a message and just to give people the opportunity to feel like they've said their goodbye mm. we had so many people. My phone, I think, for a fortnight was just, it was crazy. But it was also, I really enjoyed listening to them and reading them. And the one time that I did get to see him, I played a few of them. The more perkier ones. Because I appreciate it. In that situation, probably a lot of people would have been seeing Dad at home. Well, they couldn't come and see him at home because he was too high risk. Mm-hmm. So he saw no one. So he'd gone from being really active in the community to being quite lonely. To disappearing. And like I said before, Dad just didn't have the intention span to hold a long conversation over the phone. Yeah, so you'd lose touch with people. Um, or you make the assumption that all is well and no news is... Good news. Good news. I'd like to think people have got some comfort out of knowing that their voice clips, emails were read out or the videos were played to him. The amount that you receive just shows how many yeah. people will be there at the end of COVID lockdown ready to celebrate him. Yeah, we hope so. My brother and I got a lot of comfort out of the little messages. But some of the stories were really funny. Like, <laughs> I didn't even know some of those things happened. So I couldn't see him, couldn't speak to him, but I could learn and hear stories about him. 
So you did, you got to see your dad? Yes. So it was one hour. I had to be masked and try not to touch him. Um, I think that was really difficult because dad did not have COVID. But yet he was treated and we were treated as though he did. Yeah. For this hospice, um, it was no visiting at all until the doctor had decided they are in the last few days. And you are allowed one person to visit. Wow, so your family didn't go, it was just you. And that one person has to be the same person, which is really difficult when there's four siblings in the country, one in America. We were lucky because I managed to visit him because the chaplain pushed for it because Dad was so agitated. And she felt by seeing someone, it might help him. Agitated by... He didn't understand why he was still alive because his treatment had stopped. There's nothing more that they could do yeah so what was the point of hanging on and I think that's another real difficulty especially I think for my sister and I mm-hmm. um, to choose one of you to choose but like I say we were really fortunate because when I got to see dad on the Tuesday he wasn't within days so when we had the phone call to say oh I think we can start visiting we had to ask the question, well, I've already been, does that mean no one else is allowed to go? And they managed to override the fact that I'd already been and one more person was allowed to go. So my sister managed so to, go to go. But it's not the same. I mean... I can't imagine not being able to touch him. Um, yeah. We could go to the hospice and drop stuff off, pictures and things, but we weren't allowed to see him. So knowing he was behind a pane of glass, just on one of the days... My sister and the boys, they went and just sat outside in, in the gardens and they got some comfort knowing that dad was nearby. But I personally felt it was torturous to know that just a few, a few doors you could You could see actually be him. with him. When I went and saw dad, he specifically asked for one photograph and that was our first ever family holiday. So I went and dropped it off for him, knowing that I wouldn't be allowed to see him. And the restrictions had changed again about personal effects. And it was, oh, not sure we can take them. And I was like, I was here yesterday. <laughs> you could take the stuff yesterday. What has changed in 24 hours? So they had to go and get some antibacterial wipes, wipe down the frame. And I just bought like a shirt and some joggers in the hope, or well, maybe if he did want to get up or just some clothes. Sort of some clothes. He's, he's got his clothes. But they were like, oh, we can't take clothes. Um, so I was like, okay, that's fine. But yesterday they could have. But yesterday they could have. <laughs> Yeah, it I just sums up COVID in the way that different places are having to make it up as they go along. Yeah. The Facebook group. Families are really torn with what they need to do for their loved one and what are the restrictions, which is exactly how we felt. You know, dad is supposed to be shielding, but he needs to be at the hospital five times a week for some really important treatments. And I remember you saying about your responsibility with work. Yeah. Was I supposed to be at work still as frontline? We spoke to a couple of doctors at his various appointments saying, like, what, what is the deal here? Should we not be seeing dad? But if we're not seeing dad, who's looking after him? In the end, the hospital just said there's, there's no ideal situation. And the chance of one family having four key worker children is probably next to nothing. But it, it happened to us. Um, we didn't have the children around him. They said he's probably safer coming to hospital with us because we're anti-back in the car, wherever he's been, with gel in his hands. Would it be the same if he was on hospital transport? Mm. 
you know, you're, you're doing your very best. And obviously, if we had any symptoms, we, we wouldn't have gone near him. He was a man on chemotherapy, a man going through dialysis, and a man needing an ascites drain once a week. It's not like you could even stop one, because they're all equally important. I don't know how. We didn't get it. He didn't get it. One thing that I missed was where it all started. It was your 30th birthday. You said to me he shouldn't be drinking because he has got problems with his liver. Dad used to be on medication for arthritis. He would have regular blood tests for that medication. And it was on one of these blood tests that they picked up his liver function wasn't quite right. But it was to do with a routine blood test that came back a little bit off. So they recommended that he stop drinking for X amount of time to get his liver function back to where it should be. He went on a holiday to Zambia for a month and when he came back from that, we were like, oh my goodness, the diet there obviously suits you because he had lost so much weight. And there was us thinking he's eating healthy, he's not been drinking and it's just had this huge benefit. Looking back, that was one of the first signs of amyloidosis. So rapid weight loss. Rapid weight loss. Because of loss of appetite? I think it's the function of wherever your amyloidosis is building up. The problem with amyloidosis, it's not dormant, but you can't see it on the outside. My understanding of Dad's amyloidosis, he had the AL version, and I know there is other versions, um, but it's to do with protein cells and what they call light chains. It's to do with where these protein cells build up. In Dad's case, it was actually his kidneys all built up to the point where he then knocked his liver out. And it was also in his spleen. And I think those are the three common places. And AL is also the most common form of amyloidosis. My understanding is it's your bone marrow which makes your protein cells. And they're in a particular shape. And as they pass through your bloodstream, the organs which need the protein cells take them off the protein chain. In Dad's case, they change shape. So when an organ like his kidneys and liver, require a protein cell to function. It's not the right shape, so the organ can't break it down. So they end up getting bunged up with these protein cells. And then obviously it's not until a certain amount of buildup, the function of the organs affected then show up as a problem. Mm. There are similarities with cancer. Yeah, so it was actually through a patient I was seeing at work. She had a friend visiting her, and her friend was a retired renal nurse. I don't know what renal is. Kidneys and that area of the body. She had cases in her nursing career of amyloidosis. And at that point, it was literally nil survival rate. They would come to her for dialysis to keep them comfortable. And amyloidosis had the same kind of success rate as what leukaemia did. And she was like, look at how many people survive and live healthily after leukemia. Mm -hmm. Will it go the same way with amyloidosis? And I think it's only through raising awareness and what the signs and symptoms are that I think leukemia has such a better success rate. She also said that back in her day, anyone with amyloidosis would have a post-mortem so they could learn more. That's not the case now. Um, I know Dad initially toyed with the idea of sending his body to research but it's quite a lengthy process to have your body donated to science um it came to like rewriting his will put cremation Mm -hmm. so that was that but yeah my understanding of amyloidosis is it's kind of 
not detected until organs are already failing, which is how it's picked up. The amyloidosis AA form is like mainly cardiac involvement. It's treated with chemotherapy along the lines of multiple myeloma, so a blood cancer, because the idea is, is that they need to slow down the rate which these protein cells are being. Mm-hmm. But we know there's no cure. We also learned early on after dad's definite diagnosis, because they weren't sure if he had myeloma or amyloidosis, but they knew, they finally figured out it was a blood kind of condition. And how did they find that out? What sort of test? chance, it was someone at the NNN had come across one other amyloidosis case and he felt the similarities were great. From what I understand, there was one of two hospitals, you said, in the world that specialise in amyloidosis, and one of them, luckily enough, is in London. Yeah. So what was the process in between those two steps? Um, He had a bone marrow biopsy, both of which were sent to the amyloidosis centre, which is in part of the Hospital of Royal Free in London. And the only way to detect what chemotherapy and where the amyloidosis is built up to get a definite determination of what type it is, is to have a special scan. And it's only in those two places in the world that they do these special scans. And the way they described it at the hospital is you have some contrast put in, you go for a big scanner, it highlights exactly where these protein cells are. I want to say it's called a SAP scan, but I could be wrong. It seems such a long time ago. It was quite a long time before things were properly explored because he went through what seemed ages of regular blood tests monitoring have you stopped drinking because your liver function's not improved. And because he'd been to Zambia, they then also explored tropical disease. Mm -hmm. That had a huge impact on dad. Working in the poultry industry, if there's a slightest risk that you've got an infectious disease, you can't go to a factory. Although all the tests came back negative, he asked the doctor for his own business insurance, can you state in a letter that I do not have tropical diseases? And the doctor wouldn't write the letter because they could not understand why his liver function and his kidney function and this weight loss were happening. The doctor just said, I don't know what is wrong. It's just a lot of not knowing. Dad probably wasn't honest with himself with his symptoms, mm-hmm. but maybe shrugged it off as, oh, it's going to be nothing serious, so didn't go to the GP. Because it's so rare, there's only a very small handful of experts. Mm. One of the problems with Dad's liver not functioning correctly was potassium levels. He went for some blood tests and it was on one of his chemo days and he had the chemo. And then he had a phone call late that evening to say, you need to get to A&E, your potassium level's dangerously high. And we go to A&E where we're told they'll be waiting for you. And we have to sit there and be triaged like any other person attending A&E and we got seen by the A&E nurse and they said oh what brings you here today what brings us here today is because you've asked us to come in because it's so urgent then I would step in because dad would get really agitated I explained that he's had a diagnosis of amyloidosis all right what's that then and it was the common reaction 
Am I the people like, you're going to for help and guidance. <laughs> and they don't know what it is. And then you're almost educating them with what amyloidosis is. <laughs> or what my understanding of it is. And it's really scary when you're told that your dad has got a condition that's not curable. And no one knows what it is. You go to seek help and the first reaction is, what's that then? And I think I even remember posting on the Facebook group, the best thing about posting here is the first reaction with anything. It was just instantly like, yeah, well, I've had that experience. Isn't it so frustrating? And it just really rung home how rare. And how alone is. you were as a family. Yeah. Apart from the people in that Facebook group, which you mm. relied on a lot and you went to for a lot of your guidance. The only trouble with the Facebook group is the vast majority of the people on there are in America. Is that where the other yeah. centre is as well? So a lot of the um, talk that they have regarding like their treatment, the medications and stuff, I can't really relate to. And amazingly for them, they've had their stem cell transplants, they've had liver transplants, they've had kidney transplants. We knew Dad was never going to be eligible for any of it. Why not? His kidney function was poor, as was his liver function, and you wouldn't normally have a transplant in someone of Dad's age, of 70-odd, when the kidney that you're potentially going to be transplanting is only going to get affected again, which is understandable. So I, I can't relate to some of them on the group. And they have a better understanding of what these light chain readings are. I couldn't understand it because no one ever explained it to us. And it's quite complicated to try and not only understand it, be able to process it in relation to my dad. So anyone that I learn about that knows of it, I get quite excited. (laughs) (laughs) And it's always, what's your experience? Which is the whole reason you came to me and said I'd really like to do a podcast so that I can get some people together to share their stories, like on the Facebook group, but just a bit more long form. Not everybody's on Facebook. And we can easily get somebody onto a podcast who is in America who can feedback that side of things and likewise have people closer to home for their... What do you you call yourselves? Amy Warriors, which I think is amazing because they are... But I just think there's a lot of people out there trying to find answers and understand what amyloidosis is for their loved one. And it's so different watching it. Mm -hmm. I feel for Dad, he was going through so much, hating every moment of dialysis. And I could see that he looked rubbish. But actually, we felt rubbish with him, which is really tough. And I think when I started researching what support is out there, there really isn't. And if I could just listen to a podcast of someone who's been through it, just to know that, yeah, it does make them grumpy and you have no idea what you're supposed to cook for them because they're supposed to have a low potassium diet, but also with the low potassium for their liver, they have to have a special balance of sodium and salt for their kidneys. (sighs) And during all that, they're also on chemo, so their whole taste buds have changed anyway. So if I could have just heard once for a podcast or read somewhere... It's okay to want to just scream (laughs) and hate amyloidosis. It would have made me feel less alone. A lot of the questions from anyone helping dad or wanting to know what's going on with dad channeled my way. I know just as much as what they do. You touched on earlier all the different deaths that you've dealt with. You are so experienced in your field. Unusually so. 
with death and then to have lost both your parents at the age of 30 and, and also a granddad who you were really close with and I've seen you go through them all completely differently yeah when those words were first spoke that it was incurable one of the thoughts that went through my mind was I'm actually gonna be on this journey of grieving and it's not gonna be sudden and it's not gonna be a shock and in fact it was a shock it was quick you know dad died six months from diagnosis I mean, we thought he had a couple of years and it was made near impossible to plan anything. Two weeks before dad really deteriorated, we were asking for some care to help with dad's meal preparation because unfortunately one of the side effects of his dialysis was low blood pressure. So he couldn't stand to do anything. It was just going to be quite tricky to make sure that he'd had lunch. And we were just asking for someone to come in and just make sure that he's got lunch. And because of COVID, meal preparation was not deemed a priority. And we were like, pardon? How, how can meal preparation not be on the priority list? The only way we were able to get some care is because dad had had a couple of faults. So nothing to do with the amyloidosis? No. So we had to play on the fact that dad had fallen a few times. Therefore, he was unsafe to get some meals. But any other time, mm -hmm. absolutely. You can have a wash in the morning. That's, that's not a problem. You can't have any food. You can't have any lunch. And you can't have any tea. And they were like, oh, you know, we don't make the rules. And we would encourage family members to become involved. And I was like, how much more involved do you want us to be? <laughs> we were supposed to actually be keeping away from him, working front line. And then the difficulty came with trying to get ready meal companies to cater for dad's specialist diet. Because you couldn't just like whip down to Tesco's and buy a couple of ready meals that a carer could bung in the microwave for him. Because of the sodium. Because of the sodium and the potassium content. The one appointment that I went with dad for the dietitian, even she was like, this is quite complex, so I'm going to have to look into it. I can't give the answers right now. And she doesn't have the answers. <laughs> How are we supposed to have the answers? <laughs> Everything was just really, really complicated. And I'm sure it doesn't have to be that complicated. I mean, dad could have sought some support from the Big C Centre, which is attached to the hospital site. But then he could only access that on his chemo days. And then chemo got moved off site of the main hospital. And I just think my worry is, okay, dad had a rare condition, but he's still a patient. He's still a patient that was requiring assistance and assessment and equipment and guidance. And everything just shut down and a lot of that support went with it. Yeah. And I just think there's families that I look after that live alone because their son, daughter, whatever lives away. How would they get support? What about if they just became lost in the system of we don't really know what to do with you? Who is fighting for them? Who's saying that they've had a fall because that's the only way that they can be fed? All because of COVID. During my light bulb moment of I want to do a podcast and I'm sure it's going to be really easy, <laughs> I kind of put the feelers out there if anyone wanted to come on and share a different experience or give some insight. I've had a few people come back to me and they would gladly come on the podcast. I feel it's really important as well to talk about the inevitable. Amyloidosis isn't curable and at some point the amyloidosis is going to win. And with that, I think it's hugely important to not shy away from that taboo talk. I think it'd be really great to raise awareness about the importance of having a will talking about your funeral wishes, power of attorney, and hopefully, maybe even a GP. She did agree to it. <laughs> Lots of potential people who could come on and the hope is that 
anybody going through or potentially facing amyloidosis, they can come up with this podcast and it will help someone. Exactly. Talking about it, even if it's someone that they love has been diagnosed with an incurable disease, I'm sure similar feelings happen to those as well. There has to be a practical side. Every family is different. Um, we're quite an open family. Would dad have ever thought about his will had it not been through the experience of mum? He updated his will. Having that peace of mind that things are done, things are spoken about, and then you can save the last moments to what really matters, and that's just about the now. Well said. And I think there's some funny stories along the way. I mean, I like to think that, okay, amyloidosis kind of took my dad, but what he also gave me is um, my dad. He was forced to stop working. He was such a workaholic. I gained my dad for six months and had some of the best memories and conversations in those six months that I probably have all my adulthood. It's not all bad. And the other positive is this. Exactly. To be continued. <laughs>